So one of our friends here in the Blue Mountains, Emily, and her husband, John, have quite a large property. And on that property, they have a monk, a wandering ascetic monk in the Theravadan tradition called Bante Jason. And we were just about to leave the Blue Mountains, actually, and Emily said, wait a minute, you should talk to Bante Jason. He's about to enter a month of silence as part of his rainy season retreat, but he agreed to delay the beginning of his month of silence for this interview. So we're going to meet him now. There's been one time where I've given eight precepts to a young man sitting in this cave in the morning, and it's rained while the sun was shining. And it rained heavily as a storm, so that the front of the cave became a curtain of rain. So what are the eight precepts? Eight precepts are higher precepts um, that lay people can take if they want to live more aesthetically, like a monk for a day or two. Huh. Yeah. In the old days, um, faithful Buddhists would do it once every full moon and dark moon. Hmm. Yeah. It's a fasting. So fasting from food, but also fasting from central impact. Huh and a day where they can reflect upon their lives, reflect upon the teachings, and then make commitments to change their life. So a regular New Year's resolution. Mm. Yeah. So it seems there are lots of different grades or uh, steps towards becoming a full monk. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your story? How did you make that transition? And uh, I understand you've been a monk for eight years now. Yes. What was your life like before, and how did it come to be this mm. way? Well, I was always a very serious young man. So I grew up thinking about suffering and wondering why it is that everybody complains about their suffering, but then they do nothing about it. <laughs> um, so particularly during my teenage years, I was attempting to formulate my own philosophy of life, um, particularly centered about what you need to do in order to, to be happy and fulfilled. And when I went to Japan as an 18-year-old, as a Rotary International Exchange student on my gap year, I started to read Buddhist literature and discovered that um, the Buddhists were thinking the same thoughts that I was thinking. And of course, they'd been doing it for thousands of years, so they could save me a bit of work. <laughs> so then I came back from Japan, went to university, um, joined some university Buddhist club activities, um, met some monks, and gradually started to get serious. And by the time I graduated from university, I had the aspiration to become a monk. And then I um, spent some time in New York um, with a Mahayana Chinese Chan group, and then came back feeling very disappointed and disillusioned. But one of the interesting things was that when I was in New York, I visited a very famous American monk called Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, he's most well known for his epic translations of the early Buddhist literature. And at that time, I was in Mahayana, and early Buddhist literature is um, preserved by the Theravada tradition. So when he gave me one of his books, I took it very politely, but never intended to read it. But I took it all the way back to Australia, and in my period of disillusionment and depression, I looked at my shelf, and the only book that I hadn't read was Bhikkhu Bodhi's book. <laughs> and at that point, it was the only book that I could stomach reading. And after reading it, I found that all the contradictions and the, um, not just paradoxes, but hypocrisies that I was discovering inside practice 
in reality were actually resolved in a really straightforward way by the historical Buddha. And it became very, very clear that the hypocrisies had arisen on account of people's um, concoction of a mythological Buddha. So I became inspired again. I lived in forest monasteries in Australia for a while and then decided that I wanted to go all the way back to the original model and not just live in monasteries, but have the skills that I needed to live the walking life, a truly homeless life, eating one meal per day, walking around barefooted everywhere, no more property than three robes and a bowl and a few sundries, taking no money, um, collecting foods on the streets. I wanted to um, see whether or not that was possible. So I formulated in my mind a plan to go to Sri Lanka um, to find a monk like that. And I decided to go to Sri Lanka instead of Thailand or Burma or any of the other Theravada countries because I just needed a few factors on my side. Number one, I needed warm weather, but that's common across all the Theravada countries. But number two, I needed um, people who could speak English. So out of all the Theravada countries, Burma, Laos, um, Thailand, Sri Lanka, the Sinhalese have the best English. So I decided to go to Sri Lanka. And then soon I was ordained as a monk. I found that I, there aren't any monks who really live this way, but I just found the best um, monastery that I could. And then trained myself in what I believed I needed to do in order to live this way myself and become the monk that I was looking for. And then after a year inside my ordination monastery in Sri Lanka, I decided to um, pay respects to my elders and return to Australia to experiment with this life here. What were some of those early hypocrisies uh, or paradoxes that mm. you found in your own practice were resolved by the early Buddha? Yeah, okay. One of the things that you find inside Buddhism is a lot of talk about emptiness. And it's, it's a real simple formula. This rock here is empty, right? You, Steve, you're empty. Therefore, this rock and you, Steve, are the same thing, right? So... The thing about religion is it tends to take these sorts of things really, really seriously um, and it can get really dangerous. So killing is empty. <laughs> Not killing is empty. They're exactly the same thing, right? Lying is empty. Telling the truth is empty. They're exactly the same thing. But ordinary people, you don't get it, right? So you ordinary people, you're still stuck with ordinary morality. But when you're enlightened... Right? You see that that's just all empty stuff and you don't care anymore, which allows the master to do horrible things and then just say to the people, you just don't get it. Did you witness that sort of thing going on? It happens all the time. Mm. Yeah. Personally, did you witness that? Uh, or was it the possibility of that that was disturbing you? I, I mean, I just met lots of people who were experiencing that. Mm. Didn't have it so bad myself. But even today, when I travel around, I, I keep hearing stories. Mm. Yeah. What um, do you think it is about the historical Buddha's teachings that uh, addresses that particular? Quite a situation? few things. Okay, so the history of humanity is really, really simple in every field, whether it's religion, economy, law, government. You start with good ideas. Well, somebody's got some good ideas, right? And those good ideas will make that somebody and his adherents really popular. And then popularity leads to power and wealth. Yeah, and power and wealth leads to corruption. And then corruption leads to changes to the original ideas behind the backs of the ordinary people to justify the corruption, to make the corruption look normal and even good. Yeah? So 
people in general, they're okay so long as they've got somebody above them who has really good virtue and is watching them. But what happens when you're at the top? What if you're the Pope? What if you're the head honcho of whatever Buddhist sect there is out there? Yeah? You feel, well, nobody's watching me and everybody will just believe me if I change the rules. Or I make one set of rules for them and another set of rules for me. And they'll nod their head and be happy about it. Yeah, that's unfortunately um, the reality of human intelligence. Um, the fact is most people can't tell if you lie. And most people can't tell if you shift the argument. And most people aren't trained as lawyers. So, there was one thing that the historical Buddha did that was different to every other form of Buddhism. He said that the leaders of the dispensation should be ascetic monks who live homelessly. Why is that important in terms of the corruption cycle? Well, very simple. If you're an ascetic monk who lives homelessly, you physically can't gather power and wealth. So although that's not a 100% guarantee against um, developing craziness as a monk, and it does happen, um, it's a pretty good safeguard and safety valve. Because essentially there are two types of ascetics in the world. Crazy ones and sane ones. <laughs> so have you travelled in India? Never. Okay, so if you've ever been to India, then you'll see the sadhus on the streets, right? And they're crazy, and clearly so. Yeah, they stink. I mean, you know, I love them and everything, and they're, they're great fun to be around, but they're smoking hash, and they smell, and they have a wild look in their eyes. You wouldn't make them your religious leader. You wouldn't follow them and trust them, saying... Yeah, if you say things that are counterintuitive, they're probably right. You think you're saying things counterintuitive because you're crazy. Yeah. So if you do asceticism badly without wisdom, basically you go nuts and you smell. But if you do asceticism well in a way that develops your wisdom, your compassion and your renunciation, your humility, then you become wiser and brighter than everybody else despite your circumstances. And you don't need a certificate given to you by an institution for that to shine out to people. Yeah, people don't go to you and say, what lineage do you belong to? Where's your, your ordination certificate? What test did you pass at Buddhist university? How many years did you, did you study? All they need to do is come to you, you know, maximum five times and have a really difficult, uh, deep conversation about difficult matters and actually see from the way that you talk the way that you look at them, that you're more lucid than everybody else, despite your circumstances. And that's no guarantee of enlightenment, but at least it's something. Yeah. So, I think in the original model, these sorts of wanderers, the Buddha, his monks, his nuns, they, of course, kept a check on each other to stop the corruption within the Sangha, but also they became a really good way to police lay society, because they don't actually have any political authority or any financial authority. All they have is moral authority. They can't order anyone to do anything, but people, when you're in the presence of purity and really deep wisdom, an ordinary person will feel ashamed of themselves for doing the wrong thing. So if you're the king and you're making the rules, if an ordinary person comes up to you and says, you're not doing the right thing, the king can easily say to you, right, off with your head. Yeah? But it's harder to do that with a wanderer because a wanderer's got mojo. Yeah? He can look the king in the eye and say, right, do you want to go to hell, son? 
Do you really want that? Because I'm not afraid of you. Whereas everybody else would go, I'll be quiet now. <laughs> mm -hmm. mm. But was it um, at university where you studied law, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, that so drew you to Buddhism? Well, when you study law, you see your measure's worth of hypocrisy. <laughs> so I was the kid in the back of the class always raising his hand saying, that doesn't make any sense. And the rest of the students would roll their eyeballs and come on, let's just get on with it and, and pass the test and get our, our degree. I mean, somewhere down um, the track, I, I gave up and did the same thing. Um, but I never took my degree very seriously. So what I was looking for was truth. And what attracted me to Buddhism was its at least um, prima facie commitment to investigation. Yeah. I mean, what happens in reality is a very different thing, but that's what attracted me at, mm. in the beginning. Yeah. So you went to Sri Lanka yeah. and became was it well ordained there. What was that like, landing in Sri Lanka, joining the monastery, mm -hmm. and what sort of things did you study there? Um, well, when I first got there, it was great fun um, because I knew Sri Lankans from living in monasteries in Australia. And they're very, very supportive of any um, young man who wants to become a monk. Because in, in Sri Lanka, monastics are seen as heroes. Again, whether or not that's the reality, but that's, um, that's the way the culture has been built. They're, they're the ones who are really searching for the truth and giving up everything that they have in order to find it for everybody's sake. So I land in Sri Lanka and you know, strangers on the streets um, saw me dressed in white. I was a foreigner, asked me what I was doing. I tell them I was looking for a monastery to ordain in and everybody would help me. So it was a really beautiful thing. And I, and I love Sri Lankans. Um, they're, they're incredibly beautiful people and a great culture. So I felt very, very comfortable in Sri Lanka for that reason and great weather as well. But I was um, keen on becoming a monk quite quickly, so I ordained only a few weeks after I got... No, I um, got to the place where I ordained only a few weeks after landing. And about a week or two after that, I asked the head monk whether I, I could ordain, and he just looked me up and down and said, yeah. And so about two months after that, I was a novice monk. I really love my ordination monastery. It's called Nayuena. Um, in a province called Kurunegala, near a town called Melsiripura. What I particularly loved was um, the camaraderie amongst all, all the young monks. I remember a time after I was ordained as a novice where I just um, developed a heavy chest and a cough, and um, early one morning, these five young monks were just knocking on my door with loads of medicine inside their hand trying to uh, make sure that I was okay. They do all sorts of funny things um, from a Western perspective. Um, but, you know, my rule whenever I'm in a new country is to learn the culture and do as the Romans do. So, for example, when I was ordained as a novice, um, I was covered in turmeric. So they shave your head at Nayuena, and then you're stripped down to your underwear, and then they paint you yellow like a corn-fed chicken. <laughs> in turmeric. In turmeric, yeah. And it was great fun. I mean, all these monks are around you, and even some of the lay people are helping out in the monastery, and it's like this festival. And you're the pinata. <laughs> <laughs> 
And um, so it's, it's a bonding experience. Um, they get all the young men who are about to ordain to um, stay in the, the one hut all night before the ordination, um, just in case the Buddhist devil comes for you and um, gives you cold feet and you run away in the middle of the night. And then, yeah, you ordain the next day in front of, it must have been about a thousand um, people. And they're, they're all keen to give you offerings so that you can have a good start to your monk's life, a little bit like relatives coming to a newlywed couple. And I, I cried and I cried and I cried when I, when I ordained. Yeah, my novice ordination, when I went from my lay clothes into my monk's robes, uh, that, that was the most touching. Yeah, when I got my higher ordination, my second ordination one year after that, it um, was nowhere near as powerful. Yeah, I felt like, okay, this is what I've wanted all my life and it's finally happening. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. What are the sort of vows that a monk takes mm-hmm. at that novice ordination? Yeah, so novice ordination, you take uh, 10 precepts to not kill living beings, to not take what is not given, to be celibate, to not lie, to not take alcohol and drugs, to not eat after noontime, to not engage dancing, singing, music, and theatrical shows to not wear cosmetics, perfumes, and jewellery, to not sleep on high and luxurious beds, and to not take any money. And then in the high ordination, you take on the 227 rules of something called the Patimokha, which is... The rules of restraint for the sake of freedom laid down by the Buddha 2,500 years ago. Yeah. Yes, amazing. What sort of things did you study? You said that when you went to the monastery in mm. Sri Lanka, you, had to, you decided to learn the things you'd need to learn mm. so you could become a wandering homeless monk. Yep. What were those things? Okay, so now you're in is a really good monastery in that um, they make sure that the monks understand the monks' rules before they ordain. So I had to study the old Patimokha rules and the commentaries on the old Patimokha rules, and I had to go and pass a test as well. And we spent um, time with an elder at the monastery once a week um, to, to learn all these rules. Also, I studied Sinhalese, and also I studied Pali, which is the oldest Buddhist language that we have, which um, the Theravadan canon is written in. But um, in order to become a walking monk, I knew I'd have to go beyond what everybody else was studying. Um, I knew I would just have to train myself on how to just sleep in the middle of the forest with just my three robes and my bowl. I knew that I'd have to work out how to find water and to um, survive with very little water in, in bad circumstances, how to eat only one meal per day and um, be satisfied with whatever people happen to give to me. Um, how to arrange my robes in different ways so that I could sit out in the forest without mosquitoes eating me alive. Yeah. Well, all the practical details of the wandering life. How did you learn those things? Trial and error. Yeah. I'm reading the old texts. I mean, essentially, if you want to learn anything in life, all you really need to know is it's actually possible. And if you can get a few hints along the way, that's a that's, um, bonus. But all you really need to know if you're committed is just to know that it's possible. And that's what faith is all about. Yeah, so the texts make it clear that's the way that the monks and the nuns were living in the old days. And I saw no good reason why if it could be done in the old days, it couldn't be do- done now. So um, 
I just I just threw myself into it, gleaned what um, few clues I could from the ancient texts, and and found that you know if, if you try these things, you, it's not too hard to work out. It's sort of like just playing around with a video recorder without the instruction booklet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. I have two sort of questions immediately come to mind. Mm. How do you arrange your robes so you don't get beaten by it, it beaten uh, hurtened <laughs> by mosquitoes? All right. So, for the first few years of my monk's life, I found it's actually impossible that mosquitoes, if you just wear cotton, will always bite through. So your your shoulders and and your knees will always be very very painful, and it will be difficult to get to sleep at night before about 2 o'clock when mosquitoes go to sleep. Um, so that was just a really hard period for the first few years. Um, but later on, I um, allowed to myself a monk's woolen rug, which is allowed for inside the Patimoka. And what I found was that if you throw the rug over your head and your shoulders, and then you throw... So that's around your back... And it's only big enough really to go across your head and your back and then it um, flops against the ground around your, the backside of your body. And then you throw the rest of the robes over the front. So all the contact points um, are covered by the thick rug and um, the, the other robes can just go over the front to stop the mosquitoes from getting in and, and that, that stops them from getting in. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> and one thing you didn't mention yet hmm. is meditation. Yeah. And I would imagine that most people, when they think of a, a Buddhist monk, mm. particularly a wanderer, mm. uh, the images of meditating in caves mm. all the time and yep. that sort of thing. Yep. How how much a part of your life and your training at that monastery mm. was meditation? Oh, a huge amount. Um, although with meditation, I've more or less always gone my own way um, because I think that's what the Buddha wanted his monks to do. See, today when people think about meditation, they think about techniques and lineages based upon techniques or techniques based upon lineages, right? And it seems to me from the early literature that the Buddha didn't actually teach techniques. What he taught was principles, which is a different thing. So it's sort of like you don't necessarily need to teach a person cooking by giving them recipes all the time that they have to follow very, very strictly. You can just say, well, that's a pot and that's a stove and if you heat things up, they change. <laughs> and with that knowledge, a smart person can work a lot of things out. So the Buddha, in the early literature, doesn't give any techniques. He just gives general guidelines about how the body and the mind work and how you can change the body and the mind using actions of body, speech, and mind. And then he says you want to observe those changes really, really carefully and then look for two different patterns. When you do an action that leads to long-term suffering and an action that leads to long-term freedom from suffering, and that's the difference between the wholesome and the unwholesome. And essentially, all Buddhism is, is developing the wholesome and abandoning the unwholesome all the way to the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion and to the ending of rebirth and suffering. So even before um, I got to the monastery, I was, always, I was already thinking in this way because before I was ordained, I already knew the early literature. Um, and had a vision in my mind about how the early monks were different to monks today. And I'd also, from my experience inside Buddhist circles, seen a lot of problems inside meditation communities. 
Um, so there's a lot of good PR for meditation today, like, you know, do mindfulness meditation and bring down your blood pressure. But, you know, so we're walking your dog. <laughs> so we're having a hot bath. So we're watching Superman on television. <laughs> so what does your me- meditation look like today? What sort of, if, in other words, have you arrived at certain uh, usual ways that you do it? Yeah. Certain technical approaches that you've sort of come across or settled on? Yeah, so when I teach, uh, I still teach like uh, a basic formula, but they always tell people, look, you, know, you can scrap that once, once you get... You're just losing the formula right now so that you can get some experiences of the principles. Mm. And you can scrap that after if you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the basic technique is um, you know, sitting in a quiet place and getting to know your body really, really well while sitting up straight. And, but um, sitting up straight means feeling your body so that you can tell whether or not you're too tight or, or too loose in any place inside your body, you know, including your left pinky. And whatever you feel on the inside, learning to be okay with it, that's like the first step. And you've got to learn how to breathe calmly no matter what you find. So it's like if you're trying to overcome a phobia, you see a spider and you're dead scared of it, your breath will change. You won't be breathing like a calm man, you'll be breathing like a, a frightened man. <laughs> right? But if you just decide to slow down and take 10 breaths, like you pretend that you're calm. It actually calms you down. So if you don't know that, then the more exposure you have to the spider, the more scared you're going to get. Because you're just training yourself to... Um, throw your system out of control. But if you're just told, you can actually change your body's reactions and your um, mental reactions deliberately using your breath and your thoughts, then every time you expose yourself to your fear, you actually get stronger. So in the same way, we have lots of fears, a lot of angst, anger, frustration, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair, all those things locked up inside of our body. And... The first stage is to just be okay with it. Although it's not really a good description because it's not just being okay with it. It's really hard. Um, So it requires a lot of commitment um, and a lot of training in just observing how when you notice something, your body responds. And then using your thoughts and and your breath to, to calm down so you can see it clearly at the very least. And then the second stage after that is um, learning how to use the, the posture, the breath, and the thoughts to not just be okay with um, all the unwholesomeness on the inside, but how to transform it into wholesomeness. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How is the second step accomplished? <laughs> well, the second step is um, where it's really important to know the, the early literature mm. because it's hard on your own to know exactly what states are wholesome and unwholesome. Because um, one of the things about unwholesome states is they can be really fun in the short term, but they really burn you in the long term. So the early literature um, stands as the cheat sheet from the Buddha about where things go in the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So essentially the Buddha taught that um, any sorts of thoughts and perceptions and emotions based upon sensual desire and ill will and aggression will lead to suffering in the long term. Yeah. 
So one of the interesting things about um, early Buddhism compared to other forms of Buddhism is that it's just completely uncompromising about that point. And it seems that that um, boundary got lost over time because you can meditate, say, on your anger in a way that makes you really powerful. Darth Vader meditation. Yeah? And you can also meditate on sensual desire in a way that makes you really powerful, like um, Michael Jackson meditation. Right? But they have their side effects. Yeah. Now, n- none of this is to say that you're a bad person if you have anger and you're a bad person if you've got sensual desire because I've got those things too. But it's Buddhism, or early Buddhism is all about just direction. Like, nobody judges anyone for where they are. But out of compassion, what an early Buddhist says, look, there's further to go. Yeah, so I know you're having fun with whatever anger you've got right now or whatever sensual desire you've got right now, but, you know, I know, I've been further down. This is like the Buddha talking, not me. <laughs> I've gone further down. And if you were to remove that as well, even though I know it looks like it's fun right now, it's going to be even more fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you went back to Australia mm-hmm. and started living the life of a wandering ascetic, yeah. Um, one of the things that I think is often said is that certain countries like Sri Lanka or mm. India have a cultural support yep. for the ascetic lifestyle, yep. and places like Australia, yep. less so. Yep. Uh, what was it like when you started that, um, that side of things in Australia? <laughs> when I got back to Australia, um, I landed at Gold Coast Airport. And I'm from New South Wales, so I didn't have a friend. Um, didn't know anybody whatsoever when I got off I'm from the plane. I got off the plane with just my robes and my bowl and um, nail clippers. No, couldn't have nail clippers because they take that from you at the airport. (laughs) (laughs) And I I walked out onto the road and I saw the ocean and I had in my mind the idea that if I can walk from the Gold Coast to Townsville, about 1,500 kilometres with just my bowl and my robes and no organised support and just relying on the kindness of strangers, then I will have proved that this lifestyle is still possible because everybody says it's not possible. You know? And I thought to myself, right, that's the ocean in front of me, which means if I turn left, that's north. If I just keep going, well, it's Queensland. There aren't that many roads. And eventually I'll get to Townsville. <laughs> and so I did. Um, how did I find food? I mean, the first day it was raining and I didn't know how to get food. It was 10 o'clock. I have to eat before 12 o'clock. Um, I thought, okay, I'm just going to, out of faith, do what I did in Sri Lanka. So in Sri Lanka, you just walk as a monk with a bowl in front of people's houses and people literally run out of their houses to put food into your bowl and they'll chase you down the street to put food in your bowl because they want to make good karma. doesn't happen in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) So um, by 11 o'clock, I find, okay, this is not working. And I think, okay, I'm not going to get any food today. I'm just going to have to bear it. And I put my bowl away and I'm walking past a supermarket and then a girl gets out of the car and says, oh, hello, can I take a photo of you? And I grumpily, because I was really grumpy in those days, said, yeah, sure. And I said, so why do you want to take a photo? And she said, well, you know, I read a book by the Dalai Lama once and I think it changed, it saved my life. And I said, oh, really? How did it save your life? She said, well, I realise I'm not the centre of the universe. Oh, quite an insight. What's a bowl for? I said, well, you know, I'm an old-fashioned monk and I don't have any money and um, we just get by by collecting food. She said, yeah, I'll buy some food. Come with me to the supermarket. 
So something like that basically happened every single day all the way to Townsville. Mm, interesting. What was, were, were there any challenges? I mean, living out in the Australian bush, mm. I don't, you know, moving from place to place, there must mm. have been long stretches in the bush. Or, yeah. Uh, what, how yeah. did you survive in that sort of a situation? Well, long stretches in the bush, straddling highways. So I would just wake up in the morning, start walking after there was enough daylight for people to see me on the road, and then pull out my bowl from my bag at around about 7.30 and just keep walking till 11 o'clock. And people would always stop and give me food. Mm. Yeah. And in the early days, I was really, really strict. If people stopped and said, do you need a, le- uh, a lift mate? I would say, no thanks, they'll drive off. And they asked, do you need any help mate? I would say, no thanks, they'll drive off. Only if they said, do you need any food mate? I'd say, yes, I'm collecting arms food. Or if they said something like, what's the bowl for? I'd say, well, I'm collecting arms food, they'll give me food. And even then, I got food every single day before 12 o'clock. Wow. Yeah. That was for eight years that's been like that. Pretty much, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you've come here um, and you're staying in this series of caves. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about this place? Yeah. Why are you here? Well, I started this journey as a wandering monk in Queensland. And then I decided to come back to New South Wales for my dad's 70th birthday. So I walked from Brisbane to Sydney in about two months um, to get to my dad's birthday party. And I've been in New South Wales ever since because it's hard to get back to Brisbane. Yes, <laughs> I can imagine. And there came a point in my stay in New South Wales where I just decided that I wanted to live in caves. And I'd already been invited once to give talks in the Blue Mountains and that friend who made the invitation I knew was an avid bushwalker. So I decided to visit her and ask if she knew any caves in the Blue Mountains area. She took me to a cave, um, and it was beautiful and it was very large, but the problem was is that, was that it's about an hour's walk from any roads. But I just thought, well, this will do. And then she said, well, it's going to be pretty difficult to get food. You're going to have to walk a long way if you're going to walk all the way into town because that'll take you, like, maybe two hours. So it'll be four hours every day. And you probably don't want to do that for your range retreat. So I was looking for a cave for my range retreat three years ago. As we were walking out of the National Park, we stopped at the first house um, by the entry to the National, National Park. And we heard some drumming. And my friend said, oh, I know, I know the drummer. I've done some performances with him. Maybe he'll let you set up a marquee here um, so that you don't have to walk all the way into town for food or you know, set up a, a marquee inside the national park and the rangers might take you away. So she set up a, a meeting with um, the drummer and turns out that he already knew about a set of caves near his property. And we talked and he said he always wanted to turn one of these caves into a meditation cave. And he discovered it something like 13 years ago. And he'd already made um, a few rock steps and um, flattened out a few areas for meditation and done some meditation there himself. And he welcomed me to stay, and I've, I've been using it ever since. That's John from yeah. Emily's husband. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So I understand that you delayed the beginning of your range retreat by one day to talk to me. Is that right? No. So I've been on range retreat for about a month now. Ah. Um, but I've delayed 
my one month of pure silence, not talking to anybody for one day to make a special appearance on this excellent podcast. Thank you. That's quite an endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what is the daily routine of an aesthetic monk? Yeah, so if I'm stationary, then I just get up really early in the morning before sunrise and I'll meditate. Um, and then I'll eat sometime before 12 o'clock. And the rest of the day is filled up with studying, meditating, chatting with people, mm. yeah. discussing the Dhamma, answering questions. Yeah. I noticed as we were setting off to do this, to, to come to this cave, mm. uh, a local bhikkhu came mm-hmm. and uh, he brought some nuns and yes. some other people to visit you. Mm. Uh, that's actually quite a funny story. Maybe you could say why he did that. But it seems that your role mm. is not just to be aesthetically meditating mm. and uh, in that sort of a personal quest. Mm. You also seem to have a sort of community function. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the first thing is that the world is nuts. And it's nuts for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that people have been fooled into thinking that their wants are needs. Well, first what advertising does is it makes them proliferate on their wants, and then it fools them thinking those proliferate wants are actually needs. And even though people of our generation can actually remember a time where we didn't have mobile phones and we were still alive, if you talk to the average person today and you take away their mobile phone, you actually start to see fear in their eyes. So even if an aesthetic doesn't say anything, they at least stand as evidence that a human being can actually live a simple life and be happy, and that's a powerful message. And then if he can actually talk, then he actually show people what he or she has done in order to live that happy life. Yeah. How old are you? Right now? Almost 38. 38. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think that uh, is a big question about the monastic lifestyle, whether mm-hmm. it's in a monastery or in the ascetic uh, wandering path, mm. is the issue of sexuality. Mm. Um, what was that like, uh, moving from being, uh, well, moving into the ascetic lifestyle, right. cel- complete celibacy and so on? Well, not too hard, because girls were never really into me. <laughs> <laughs> is that really true? No, not really. Well, sort of, sort of not. I mean, every guy sort of thinks they could be more into me than they are. <laughs> well, that's certainly always true, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I was celibate for quite a long time before I became a monk, so I'd already settled upon that, although I wasn't celibate before that. Um, and I was celibate for quite a long time because I actually did have faith um, already as a layperson that that was the right direction to go. Before I became a monk, I went um, travelling in Europe to visit a lot of the friends I made as an exchange student in Japan. And one of them was an old flame. And I already had it very clear inside my mind that, you know, I was saying goodbye in a chaste manner. And to make a long story short, it didn't have to be that way. And I knew that that would be a test for me to see how serious I was inside my faith. And I passed the test. So the transition um, from... 
one stage of life to any higher stage of life is always full of sacrifice. And because giving up sexual interaction is such a large sacrifice, it actually brings incredible dividends as well. Like what? The sexual energy is like rocket fuel. So, I'll explain it in this poem. (laughs) Last chance to see cosmic drama and dance. Relax, you're already holding the tickets. In your breath is the deep romance. In your heart, the rhythm. In your mind, the holy trance. In your spine, the lance of heaven. I won't explain any further than that. Wonderful. (laughs) That's wonderful. Well, Bhante Jason, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.